Stocks keep going down as earnings keep rolling in. But you're in the right place because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. It is Friday, and if you've been watching stocks fall all week, it's been horrible. It's been a bloodbath. So bad. So is this TGIF or what? I guess so. Bad week. I didn't even realize, though, until I saw the headline today. It's Friday, which we're almost a week out from the whole Richard Sherman thing, but people are still talking about this. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything? It, should people still be talking about it? Do you have anything that you want to add to the Richard Sherman debate? Only the fact that I'm probably going to end this podcast and video with a similar rant at you. Don't try to bring a sorry analyst to Matt Kopenheffer. <laughs> that's, that's the result you're going to get. Whoa, whoa, that's brutal. All right, on that note, let's get to the headlines for today. We're starting off with an earnings mashup here. We've got a few uh, earnings we're going to touch on uh, right here. Discover came out with earnings, E-Trade, and First Niagara. Uh, let's kick it off with Discover. David, the thing that jumps out at me here is that Discover is essentially a bank. Most of its income, the, the vast, vast majority, is coming in through net interest income. Mm-hmm. Investors don't think about this as a bank, though. But when you look at the fact that it's got a 24% uh, return on equity, 3.2% return on assets over the past 12 months, and a wicked low efficiency ratio, if people were looking at this as a bank, they'd look at the, the current multiple, which I think is around 2.4 times mm-hmm. tangible book value, and this would be a no-brainer buy. Well, I think the flip side is that it would be a pretty risky bank because of the loans that they're making. Yes, they're getting compensated on good interest rates. Uh, Their net interest margin is above 9%. That's ridiculous compared to a bank like Bank of America. It's what, in the the 3% there. So yeah, good loan growth at Discover. It's because they're moving into areas that other banks were leaving, such as student loans, moving into more personal loans there as well. So yeah, the earnings are going to look really good for Discover when the economic climate is doing well, people are making loan payments. So as long as the economy keeps humming along and people make their payments on a regular basis, Discover is going to do well. The flip side is, if we had a downturn, had a recession, that's when they would suffer. I think you're wrong, and I'm right, but that's just me. Uh, E-Trade, I I think it's kind of interesting to describe this as swinging to a profit thanks to to more trading income or Mm -hmm. or trading fees, because really what this is about is E-Trade had made all those bad loans during uh, prior to the financial crisis. Loan provisions are down 77% year over year for the fourth quarter. And let's not forget that last year's fourth quarter, there was a $285 million charge that E-Trade took for extinguishing some debt early. Mm-hmm. So really, those were the big drivers of swinging this from a, from a loss last year to a profit this year. And even if you're looking at it last year, at least that uh, early debt extinguishment, you've got to treat that as a, as a one-off cost. So sure, you've got commissions increasing, you've got fees increasing. That's good because that's E-Trade's core business. But I wouldn't focus on the idea that this went to lo- from loss to profit. Right. And I mean, looking at the mortgages and the home equity line of credits they still have on their books, do you think that's something that investors are kind of saying, okay, they're going to work through that, it's going to be okay, or could there still be more losses out there? I think there's there's still more losses that mm-hmm. they're going to have to take on it. Um, I don't think it's as much to worry about at, at this point. I think the, the more of the concern now is how well is E-Trade set to compete mm-hmm. with it's – a, it's a tough competitive market out there. You've got Scott Trade, you've got Schwab, you've got TD Ameritrade all competing for these same customers, and it's going to be hard for them to differentiate themselves. Indeed. 
Uh, and third, we've got First Niagara, which is a, it's a smaller bank we don't talk about too often, but it was down about 10% at one point uh, this morning after releasing earnings. I mean, my reaction is that as we go through the bank earnings, one of the consistent trends we've seen is improvements in credit quality. Mm-hmm. First Niagara's books seem to be going the wrong direction. It does seem that way, and we've had some questions come in about First Niagara saying, well, what do you guys think of the situation? And we haven't addressed it that much, but it was, it's an interesting story there. 2009, they started to expand. They said, we got to get bigger up here in the Northeast. And like a lot of banks that came in and did FDIC law share agreements, they didn't do that. They just went out and bought banks on their own. They acquired some, ban- uh, some branches from PNC, acquired New Alliance, bought roughly 200 branches from HSBC, which turned out to maybe not be such a great deal. Mm-hmm. They had to dilute shareholders, raise some capital. CEO left. So there's been a lot of stuff going on at this bank. And when you report earnings with provisions going up, that's not a good sign. And that's why you're seeing the stock down 10%. The the bank is earning a nice return on its tangible equity. And and I think a lot of reason that investors are looking at this bank is uh, we look at price to book value a lot, or investors looking at banks. And this is trading at a discount to book value. The problem is, is that with all these acquisitions, they've built up a lot of intangible assets and mm-hmm. goodwill. So when you look at the multiple on a tangible book value basis, which is what we're usually talking about on this show, it's not really a bargain at all. Uh, it's, I think it's about 1.75 times in, in that kind of mm-hmm. range of tangible book value. So they're earning a decent return on their tangible book, but at that multiple, and looking at these credit trends in particular, I don't know. I'm not really. Uh, this doesn't interest me to to drill down and look at it more closely. Right. Uh, it's it's hard for me to see where is the bank going because they kind of just pursued growth to get bigger. That was kind of their strategy. Now that CEO is gone, they had an interim CEO who became the full time CEO. Mm-hmm. So now his job is to kind of say, all right, what do I do with all this? And if you listen to the the quote that he said on the conference call, he's basically saying, we're going to deepen relationships, cut costs, and it was basically just the standard banking motto out there. And now they have these all these branches in a time where a lot of banks are cutting back branches. So I don't know, maybe there's some opportunity there if they can turn around with a new CEO here, but it doesn't interest me that much either. All right, second headline. Second headline, going over to Dealbook. Lessons from Blackstone for BlackRock. So BlackRock, Blackstone used to be, what I guess you could call it a partnership or kind of a joint venture there. Yeah. Uh, now independent, doing just the kind of, I guess, boring asset management article saying maybe BlackRock will move back into private equity. Is this something you think they should do? I don't know. In general, what you want to see a, a company do is focus on where its strengths are. Mm-hmm. BlackRock is so gigantic and, and, and is such a dominant force in the sort of low-margin asset management right. side of the business. And what this article is talking about is them moving into almost the polar opposite, the very highest margin mm-hmm. of, the, of the asset management business, which is what uh, Blackstone is doing. And, and it mused about the idea of could BlackRock buy Blackstone and, mm-hmm. and have this all be one big happy family. That's not as crazy of an idea as uh, BlackRock trying to start up some new private equity uh, management fund itself. Um, there are a few large, large-ish uh, private equity companies that maybe BlackRock could buy if they wanted to do it. Um, asset management is asset management, but their particular expertise is, like I said, it's, it's in the lower margin part mm-hmm. of the business. And as if I were an investor, I'd maybe want them to focus on that. Right. I, I think I would too. And we're both 
PNC shareholders, so we're kind of an indirect shareholder of, of BlackRock yeah, since they own around 20% of, of the equity there. And I'm with you. And you talk about lower margins. Uh, BlackRock has so many more assets under management, but they basically earn the same amount of dollar profit mm-hmm. as BlackRock, which has a lot less assets there. So I'm with you. I'd rather them just focus on kind of the lower cost, low margin, be the world's largest they're asset really, They're really good at that Exactly. Business. Just stay there. All right, and final headline, we're going to Bloomberg, and the headline is U.S. stocks fall, Dow heading for worst week since 2012. I left this one for last because I don't think we have too much to say here, but are, are you worried? Stocks stocks are down, what, what is it? It's like 2.3% for the I year or something? I didn't like even realize they were down. I alluded to that in, when, when we started. I didn't know it was the worst week. 2012, oh my God. <laughs> so long ago. Uh, I'm not worried, and I saw, I forget who it was, someone was tweeting this morning, and they were like, all of a sudden, I have a lot of emerging market currency experts in my Twitter feed. There's uh. going to be a lot of people <laughs> coming out and being like, oh, the, the Indian currency is heading for trouble, and it's important to remember that there's a lot of complex there stuff out there. There are a lot of experts out there. there are a there. lot. They come out of the woodwork <laughs> in times of need, but... It's important to remember what you know and focus on that. Don't try to be like, okay, now I'm going to try to understand the Indian currency market. So let it go. Okay, looking ahead to next week, which hopefully will be a better week. I actually don't care one way or the other. Right. I I almost prefer if stocks fall another week because that makes for more bargains. But let's just say for sake of argument, hopefully it'll be a better week. One of the things we'll be looking forward to next week, maybe you won't be looking forward to this as much, but the, uh, the Fed mm. will have a rate decision, and, and within that, maybe uh, some more tapering. Do you, do you think that uh, given uh, I say, all that we've seen, uh, mostly I'm talking about the disappointing jobs report for December, do you think the Fed will continue to taper uh, in this meeting? We heard reports earlier that they that was the plan, and even though there were some quote, disappointing numbers, they were going to go through with it. I think we need to see a lot more kind of freakouts, if you will, for them to reverse course on this. So I, I'm expecting it. But again, if they don't, fine with me, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say, like I said before, there's still, there's still a lot to be unwound before the, the full accommodation of the Fed is, uh, is, is taken away. So I, even if there's kind of a little bit of a gray area right now, I don't think it's that, it would be that painful to, to taper just a little bit more. Uh, related to that, we're going to get an advanced reading on fourth quarter GDP mm. next week. Uh, third quarter GDP after the, the final reading was out, by the time the final reading was done, it's was 4.1%. Is there a possibility, I, I'm wondering if there's a possibility that we could see growth in that range again, 4.1%. I mean, anything above 4%, that's pretty impressive. Um, is, is it possible? I don't know. Is it? I, I don't know. I <laughs> I'm sure we'll get like 1%, and then it'll be revised to 2 and then back to 1.5%. Well, that's, I mean, that's part of it, too, is that looking at this advanced reading for, for fourth quarter uh, GDP, we're going to get all these revisions in the, in, the, in the afterwards, and the first reading of, of third quarter, I forget what it was, but it was substantially lower mm-hmm. than 4%. Yeah. Maybe. We'll see. <laughs> well, that's, that's helpful. Um, we've also obviously got a lot of earnings still coming yes. out next week. Uh, one of them I'm going to be tuning into is Bank of Hawaii. Uh, smaller lender, focused on, as you'd guess, Hawaii. But I actually I haven't taken too much of a closer look at this. This is a pretty quality bank. This is a well-run bank. But more of the reason why I'm interested in it is because Mike O'Neill turned around this bank sort of in the, the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And he's now the chairman of Citigroup, and along with Mike, Mike Corbett, trying to help turn around that much bigger bank. 
Um, so I want to I want to take a closer look at Bank of Hawaii and see what what makes that bank tick and how that may relate to to Citigroup and its story. Speaking of smaller companies, my fa- <laughs> one of my favorites next week reporting Evercore. Oh yes, yes, yes. The yes, small investment bank, and <laughs> <laughs> not a shareholder, which you don't own yet. Which I don't own. But uh, I talked about how you want to see them continue to gain market share because investment banking, the more market share you have, the more deals you're on. It's kind of a, a snowball effect. Market share, kind of just what they have in M and A fees, has grown at. 26% annualized growth over the, uh, over the last 12 years. 26% a year for 12 years. It's pretty impressive. They own around 5% of the market share now. You want to see them continue to gain that. That would be a good thing for Evercore. And it would be a good thing for you if you ever buy the stock. <laughs> exactly. UPS is also reporting this week, not a financial, but this is a global heavyweight. And I think more and more UPS is, is really a bellwether of global economic activity. Um, so I'm going I'm to be taking a look into those earnings to see what, what we can see, you know, just one more read on what's going on in the global economy. Last one that I'll be watching is Green Dot, a company that has the prepaid cards. I can't get my head around the Green Dot business model. And the stock's performed well recently, but the competitive environment, we talked about T-Mobile mm-hmm. coming into the prepaid space uh, this week and announcing that who would have thought, I mean, this space is going to be very competitive with all kinds of players coming in, whether it be banks, mobile companies now. Uh, who knows? Facebook could start doing prepaid stuff. Who yeah, knows? That wouldn't be that um, And when you listen to the conference calls or the conferences that the Green Dot management presents at, it almost sounds like they are working with American Express. I mean, I mean they go in there like, man, American Express, their products are so great. They've done a great job of marketing. It's just kind of odd that they spend a lot of time talking about competitors and kind of say, well, American Express got that product placement in Walmart, but and we couldn't get it. So I'm just not thrilled about the comp- competitive environment. They have really good backers there. Sequoia is a, a big backer uh, of Green Dot. So... I don't know. It's one to watch. I just think it's a very competitive space. Okay, and I'll close out with Wisdom Tree Financial. This is uh, this is an expensive stock doing an interesting thing. The the ETF space continues to grow uh, like gangbusters, mm-hmm. and and Wisdom Tree is being innovative within that space. A lot of its indexes, its passive indexes, based on fundamental metrics as mm-hmm. opposed to just market cap or size metrics. Uh, this is on my, on my research closer list. It, it looks very expensive, but the growth and the opportunity there could possibly justify that. And talking about the recent growth, I've seen a couple articles or reports out that say their growth is artificially hot, was artificially high in 2013 because of they had a, a Japan ETF mm-hmm. that had right. huge inflows. So maybe people are arguing this isn't normalized growth, but my counter to that would be there's probably always going to be new markets that emerge and have huge inflows. Maybe not as big as Japan, but I don't think you should kind discount completely life. that. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, and, and it also says something about uh, what what they're doing that exactly. people are interested in using their products. Moving on to the mailbag, we have an email address. It's wtmi at fool.com. Send us an email. We love to hear from the WTMI community. Our email today, speaking of Wisdom Tree, this is Tom from Dayton, Ohio. Uh, for, for banks and insurance companies, price to tangible book value is an important metric. How should you value a company like Wisdom Tree Investments? Uh, price to earnings, uh, price to sales, and price to book are all in nosebleed territory. Should I focus on assets under management as a ratio of something else? So that's actually a really good question. Um, and I was just running through the valuation recently on Wisdom Tree. And when I'm looking at asset managers, generally what I like to use is um, 
assets under management as a percentage of, uh, of market cap. Mm-hmm. And that is in nosebleed territory as well, which might not be that surprising given all of the valuation metrics for Wisdom Tree are. What you have to put in perspective when you're looking at any sort of valuation metric is that it's a combination of where the company is today and where it's going to be in the future. When you're looking at an asset management, an asset manager, mm-hmm. and you're thinking about assets under management, one of the things you're going to want to think about, too, is what are the kind of fees? What are the level of fees that this asset manager is going to get? So we were talking about BlackRock earlier in the show. They, they work in the lower margin part of, mm-hmm. the, of the asset management space. So you're going to expect that on a valuation basis, assets under management to market cap is going to be much lower yeah. than, say, a Blackstone, mm-hmm. which their fees are much, much higher. So you're going to get a valuation that's going to be more attractive there. But you can compare similar businesses across the space there. For Wisdom Tree, you've got, again, these are a, a lot of passive indexes are, are what makes this company interesting, and those are generally very low-fee funds. So if we look out long-term, I think eventually you're going to get to a normalized valuation for Wisdom Tree where it's going to be a relatively low percentage, uh, percentage ratio mm-hmm. of, of assets under management to market right. cap. Right now, though, in this growth period. <laughs> I was going to say maybe hyper growth period. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not necessarily going to be the case because if you saw this today at maybe like a 1% or 1.5% or even 2% of assets under management, that would be a pretty smoking deal because I think that sort of range is an eventuality kind of valuation for Wisdom Tree. Mm-hmm. But as it's growing, that would be a bargain. Right now, I think it's closer to 7% if I remember correctly. Well, uh, you, can, you can also just use the you can use earnings, right? You can project sure. the earnings yeah. out by just saying, all right, if they grow assets at, at this rate, say 10% a year, and they're, they have this sort of margin on those mm-hmm. assets under management, you can project earnings out 5, 10 years. Um, one thing you talked about, the PE looking in nosebleed levels right now, looking at the last 12 months, yeah, I think it's, what, 60 times or something, but they're growing earnings very rapidly. So if you look at kind of the most recent quarter annualized, it's down to around 30 times earnings. So be aware that it's, it was growing earnings very fast in 2013. So you can, you can try to project those out 5, 10 years and see kind of what it looks like from there. As good as those kind of projections tend to be. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So next up, uh, Friday now, we've got this tradition of having some great interviews on this show. This one in particular I'm very excited about. This was an interview I did back in November with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Until now, this interview is only available to our premium uh, subscribers, mm-hmm. uh, but now we're able, able to offer it up in the first place we're going to do it, of course, on where the money is. So we're going to cut away to uh, a clip from this interview. Uh, later, I think next week, I'll be posting the entire interview on Fool.com, so uh, W.T. Myers should keep an eye out for that, too. All right. And on the, on the opposite end of the spectrum from that, and you, you just mentioned Warren Buffett as somebody that you watched as, a, as proof that the markets aren't efficient and that you can buy, one can buy sure. individual stocks and outperform. I saw an interview you did with Brian Richards earlier this year and another of our fellow fools, and you had mentioned that you admire Warren Buffett and you take some things from his approach, but then you leave some behind. Now, I was curious to hear, what's an example of one thing that you still use that you learned from Buffett, and maybe what's one thing that you've, you've said, I'll let Buffett have that and I'll go a different direction? Okay, well, I mean, there's... Too many answers to both of those, but to give one succinct one to each, um, I would say, first of all, from Buffett, I think we've all learned that investing is rational and long-term. And when you put those two things together, 
you will emerge with superior returns. And I think he's demonstrated that over the course of his life. And I think for The Motley Fool now entering its third decade of picking stocks online, I think our historical record demonstrates that. Um, how do I not do the Buffett thing? I mean, most of what I do isn't the Buffett thing. Um, I, I'll just answer that Warren, and in many cases those for whom he is an exemplar, have sort of opted out of technology or really even wanting to think about or use or invest in technology. And that's highly ironic to me because I think we live in the most exciting technological age of all time. And the opportunities to invest in companies early on like Amazon.com or more recently in things like cloud computing and 3D printing, I could not possibly sit here and say, I'm eschewing that, can't really predict where that's headed. So, you know, our chief investment officer, Andy Cross here at The Fool, said, Dave, here's one thing I realize is the exact opposite for you with Warren. Warren likes to find a company that has one definite future. It's like Seize Candies or Geico. It's going to be around 30 years from now. They're going to be doing the same thing, and he loves that, and his disciples do. And I certainly admire that. Andy does, too. So, Dave, you love the companies that have 30 possible futures. You love optionality. You love finding something that can all of a sudden morph into a whole different thing, like Amazon.com books. All of a sudden, they're selling everything online. All of a sudden, they're actually doing cloud hosting and web services, and they've developed their own device, the Kindle, and it goes. And those are the companies that I love, uh, where you're finding companies that can morph and grow in ways that people didn't expect or couldn't foresee, and it, me included. So, um, so I guess I love the companies with infinite possible futures, and there are a lot of people who are just looking for the one sure future. Sure, that makes sense. And, and thinking about those companies with, with a lot of different futures, a lot of different opportunity, you, you mentioned 3D printing, you mentioned cloud computing, which uh, to some extent it seems like the sky is, obviously the sky is not the limit, but it seems like it at some point because there's so much opportunity. When you are thinking about investments, how big of a role does market opportunity play? Is that, is that like number one on your list? I think that's really big for me. And when you say market opportunity, I mean, maybe all of our all of our viewers know know what you mean, but I'll just redefine it as um, how big could that business become? Um, and I think that is, I, I've used the, the phrase in the past, venture capital mentality. I think that's what I have, and I think that those who enjoy rule breakers or stock advisor are supernova members. A lot of us are practicing that more venture capital approach where it's not about the P-E ratio. It's about looking management in the eye. It's not about um, uh, how the stock did over the last year. It's actually where the next five years of that technology is going to be. So you're so business-focused relative to an investor world that I think is still largely too stock-focused. People are looking at wiggles and waggles and you know, uh, 52-week highs, but I think those who are taking our approach are really thinking about the market opportunity and asking ourselves, you know, how big could that technology be? E-commerce. Mm-hmm. And then that company, eBay, let's say, within e-commerce, how large could that grow over time? And, uh, and, so, and always looking ahead. Finishing off today on the Twitter sphere, now that we've got that, that great interview on the books, David, what is our first tweet? First tweet is from Business Insider at Business Insider. Jamie Dimon goes on the attack on Bitcoin. He's attacking it. He's attacking it. He literally took a knife and was stabbing a Bitcoin. He found the only physical Bitcoin and stabbed it. One of the things that he was complaining about was the 
lack of the ability to track uh, bitcoins, mm-hmm. which makes a lot of sense for Jamie Dimon as a banker because banks have to worry a lot about regulations of knowing their customer and tracking their customer. Uh, anti-money laundering uh, obligations are, are one big thing. And for JP Morgan, we just had this big thing about Madoff, knowing your customer, knowing what your customer is doing. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin is all about not knowing your customer. And he, he points out that it's really easy to replicate. And it made me remember two months ago, JP Morgan filed a patent for a payment system that was almost exactly like that's Bitcoin. Good, so maybe he's bashing Bitcoin a little bit because JP Morgan's working on their own Bitcoin-like payment system. Uh, so I wouldn't read too much into Diamond saying this is completely stupid and it will never work because they're actually looking into it. And Wall Street Journal's uh, Money Beat talked to one of the Bitcoin supporters. And let me read you a little bit here. They said, uh, this is what Wall Street Journal wrote. Yes, Bitcoin can be used to fund illegal activities, Mr. Voorhees said to Money Beat. For that matter, he added, so can a car. The getaway car helps criminals get away from the scene of the crime, he said. And indeed, any useful technology, cars, cell phones, ATMs can be used to help criminals. Yes, that's true. But with a car, you have a make and a model. You can see it with your eyes. Potentially, there's even a license plate on there Mm -hmm. so you can track it. With Bitcoin, again, the whole idea is that you can't. Right. Well, you can track it, but it's anonymous. Right. Right. Correct. All right. Uh, next tweet. Next tweet. More diamond. More, di- more diamond. It's a, it's a Friday filled with diamond. This is from Patrick Irwin. That's at Patrick Irwin. Let's all shed a tear for Jamie Diamond. He feels so bad. Chase is giving him a raise to raise his spirits. Face palm. David, is there any reason for Jamie Diamond to be getting a raise? The, to put it in perspective, they cut uh, the board of directors cut his salary drastically. I think it was like fifty percent last year in two thousand or not last year in two thousand twelve. So now the conversation is: Should he make more than the eleven and a half million? I think it was in two thousand thirteen. Probably not. I mean, <laughs> he probably shouldn't. It, his salary is one thing. It's I think he cares more about his equity in the company. I think he has around three hundred million dollars worth of J.P. Morgan stock. So. $11 million is whatever, but I don't know. Maybe you should get a cost of living increase. I don't know, 2% COLA. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure that'll make, New York. make all the difference. Um, I'd rather see the changes for J.P. Morgan prove out mm-hmm. uh, a little bit before bumping his pay way up. I mean, I wouldn't scream and shout about it as a J.P. Morgan shareholder myself. And even though a lot of the hubbub this year was about stuff that happened in the past and not all stuff that happened uh, at J.P. Morgan, you still had the Madoff thing. Mm-hmm. You still had – it was just – it wasn't a, a good-looking year. And so it's, it's hard to want to say, even though his, his pay was cut drastically in 2012, mm-hmm. that let's wait another year. He's doing okay, though. Yeah. Uh, final tweet. Final tweet is from Michael Beschloss. He says, here Steve Jobs and $2,495 – Apple Macintosh introduced 30 years ago today. Here's a picture of young Steve Jobs with a bow tie like Mac ever, and the first Macintosh computer. That guy's got style. Uh, so what do you think we will be looking back on 30 years from to today and saying, wow, that's amazing that that was 30 years ago? Well, here's my, here's my Android cell phone. I think, I mean... That's that, going to look huge. Yeah, that, this is going to look potentially huge. It's just going to... And, and the things that this does will be like, oh my gosh, I can do that, I don't know, on my... Period. Remember when we thought it was cool you could surf the internet? Yeah, my, my watch will be able to do everything that this does. It'll Actually, be implanted in your brain. Wait, don't they have watches already? That they do. do. Yeah. The next big thing is here, according to the, Samsung. Well, there you, there you go. <laughs> All right, uh, well, that's the show for today. 
All of you WTMIers out there, if you're not already listening to us on iTunes on podcast form, make your commute a little bit better. Go ahead and download the podcast on iTunes. If you're on iTunes listening to the podcast, give us a rating. Help everybody else out there know that, uh, hey, this is a podcast worth listening to. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This is David Hansen. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next week. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.